Who knows how many chapters there are in the Bible? Off the top of your head, before your smartphones have time to load up. 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Chapter and verse divisions, as I think we know, um, are not part of the original text. Paul didn't write his letters and say, chapter 1, verse 1, and dictate. Okay, verse 2, chapter 2. Just didn't do that. But chapter and verse divisions came into use for convenience sake in the 13th century, in terms of chapters, and the 16th century for verses. Um, They're helpful for us in terms of reading and study, but they don't come to us from God. And the reason I say that is because I think that the first verse of Acts 16 should really have been verse 6. Acts 16, verse 6 should be, I think, Acts 16, verse 1. And Acts 16, verses 1 to 5 really belong to chapter 15. Chapter 15 tells the story of the Jerusalem church, their elders and apostles meeting to decide a theological question. And the question was, with the spread of the gospel into the Gentile world and this this influx of Gentile believers, are the Gentiles required to obey the Jewish, Jewish religious laws in order to be saved? Now that was a natural question to ask wasn't a strange or unusual question. It made sense that it would arise, and it made sense that they need to think it through. The God and Father of Jesus was the God and Father of Israel. Christianity was not separate from, but was the fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism. And so what was to be the relationship between Christianity and Judaism for these Gentile Christians? And led by the Holy Spirit and reminded by the scriptures and faced with undeniable accounts of how God was working, it concluded that both Jews and Gentiles are saved in only one way and the same way, by the grace of Jesus Christ, not by keeping any religious code. So they draft a letter to this effect, asking Gentiles to avoid certain practices as concessions for the sake of unity, I think. And they appoint certain men, Judas and Silas, to deliver the letter to the Gentile churches. So the letter goes with Judas and Silas, accompanied by Paul and Barnabas, simply returning home to the city of Antioch, which was the the home base for what was becoming the Gentile mission. And the letter causes great rejoicing when it gets there. Judas and Silas then return to Jerusalem, And Paul and Barnabas continue preaching and teaching in Antioch, Acts 15, verse 35. And it sounds like that's the end of the story. That's the end of the question. But in 16, verse 4, we have the delivery of the letter to the Gentile Christians whose conversion caused the question to be asked in the first place. And the result is the strengthening and the growth of the church. Chapter 16, verse 4 and 5. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observation the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
So it's there that the story comes full circle. The conversion of the Gentiles raises a controversy that threatens to divide the church, undermine the gospel, stall the mission. It ends with the gospel affirmed, the church strengthened, and the mission expanding. That's the end of the story. But just before we get there, there is these two little vignettes. The separation of Paul and Barnabas and the new partnership of Paul with Silas and then with Timothy. And the first of those is Acts 15, verses 36 to 40. There Paul, after a time, invites Barnabas to go with him to revisit the cities that they had first visited in chapters 13 and 14, where they had proclaimed the word of God, where they had experienced such intense persecution, where their very lives had been threatened, and yet where churches had been born. And Paul wants to go back and check in on them. This is sometime later. And apparently Barnabas wants to go too. And he wants to pull the original lineup back together, the original band members on their second tour. And when they had begun their first missions trip, they had taken with them John Mark. And Barnabas wants him to come this time too. But Paul doesn't want to. Mark had left them midway. Acts 13, verse 4. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and continued their journey. Now, we don't know why John Mark left them. The Bible doesn't tell us. But Paul apparently considered his leaving desertion, abandonment. He had withdrawn from them. And Paul clearly thinks he should have gone on with them. He's not reliable. And Paul doesn't want to take him then on this second trip. And in a sense, that makes sense for Paul. In light of the persecution they had undergone in these very cities on their first trip, that they had faced after Mark had left them, Paul wants to make sure that he's got people with him that he can count on. But Barnabas, who, by the way, is John Mark's cousin, we read that in Colossians chapter 4, Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him, wants to take Mark again. Maybe he sees something in Mark that Paul doesn't see. Maybe just that his gracious nature wants to give Mark a second chance. Don't know. But Barnabas says, we got to take Mark. Paul says, no way am I taking Mark. So far, so good. But it becomes such a point of contention. They disagree so sharply that they end up parting ways. Not so good. We know in church it's okay to think differently. It's okay to disagree. It might even be okay to argue back and forth and even to feel strongly about things. But to disagree so sharply that it separates you relationally, that is a painful thing. And even Paul and Barnabas, two of the great heroes of the book of Acts, a relationship that goes back 14 years to Acts chapter 9, when Barnabas first advocated for Paul to the apostles. A ministry partnership that goes back over five years, longer than that, when Barnabas first brings Paul to Antioch in Acts chapter 11. 
This partnership of two or three years journeying together, risking their lives together in Acts chapter 13 and 14. It all comes to an end. Barnabas refuses to give up on Mark. Paul refuses to take Mark with them. And so there is a painful, I think, separation. In, in reading accounts of this text and people teaching and thinking through it, you read all kinds of different things. Was Paul right? Maybe. People say that as Paul and Silas, in just a verse or two, are commissioned by the church, that that's an indication that the church sided with Paul. Others say Paul wasn't right. Barnabas was right because we read later that Paul, not exactly recanting, but affirms John Mark as an indispensable worker in the gospel. The first book in the New Testament that was written is generally agreed to be the gospel of Mark. Was Paul wrong? And was it Barnabas' encouragement that saved Mark in ministry? We don't know. We don't know. But we do know that when a sharp disagreement, and this word indicates anger and tension. This is not healthy, ah, let's agree to disagree. Sharp disagreement causes a painful, painful separation. And Barnabas refuses to leave Mark, takes him with him, and goes off to the island of Cyprus, which is where the first journey had begun. Paul partners up with Silas. This prophet and minister from Jerusalem calls him back, and they go on together. And the church commissions the two of them on their next phase of their ministry tour. And... In Acts 13 and 14, if you remember, if you can picture the map, I should have had it on screen. If you can picture the map, they had left Antioch, sailed to Cyprus, gone from there to, um, to Perga and traveled overland back towards Antioch and then retraced their steps and gone home. Now Barnabas and Mark have gone to Cyprus, so Paul and Silas take the overland route and come at the cities that, they've, that Paul has been to before from the other direction. So this time they come to Derby first, where they had gone to Derby last in the first trip. So they get to Derby, and they come to Lystra. And there they see Timothy. Timothy is from that area. Timothy is well spoken of by believers in the whole region, not just in his hometown. So clearly here is a godly and competent young leader, even though he's very young. And a new ministry team thus is born. Paul first with Silas, who also suffers with Paul, ends up in prison together, as we'll hear about in a couple weeks later in this chapter. Silas becomes Paul's secretary. Two of the letters, First and Second Thessalonians, come from Paul and Silas, which probably means that it's Paul's letter. Silas wrote it for him. There's a partnership. And then Timothy joins them. And Timothy, too, is Paul's partner in the letters. You read his name in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and the book of Philemon. So letters that come from the heart of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And, of course, two of the letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, addressed to Timothy. So Timothy is instrumental in some of the scripture that we have, some of God's word that has come to us. 
And so this incredible ministry team is born that lasts many years. Now here's the question. The church historically has often had serious conflict and separation. Some might say, and maybe they're not far off, that the church over 1,500 years are the champions when it comes to being angry at each other and fighting over things and separating. And it hasn't given us a great testimony to the world, has it? But the story of the church is in some ways the story of Paul and Barnabas. What happens with Paul and Barnabas? A ministry team gets separated And rather than that crushing the mission, God redeems it and two ministry teams are born. Does that make Paul and Barnabas' disagreement right? I don't think so. But God redeems it and the ministry is expanded. And I think church history reflects that as well. Um, My wife has commented sometimes that that the very existence of the church in the 21st century is evidence of God's presence and power because by rights, the way that we have behaved for 2,000 years, we should not have lasted this long. But God has a way of taking things, even our weakness, even our sin, even our anger, and expanding his ministry. Jesus said, I will build my church He didn't say, look, I'm counting on you guys to get along so that my church can be built. He said, I'm going to build my church. And I'm building it on the reality of what Peter just said, that I am the son of God. I'm going to build my church. In the book of Acts, you see wave after wave of things that by rights should have destroyed the church. Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, the idea of internal hypocrisy and moral cancer should have rotted the church from the inside, but it doesn't. And we read that after that episode, multitudes of people come to the Lord. Acts chapter 6, more internal dissension. The Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Christians, the Hebrew Christians and the Greek-speaking Christians argue with each other, saying there's favoritism. We're not being treated right. You're treating them better than us. That threatens to separate. They deal with it in chapter 6, and the result is that the church continues to grow, and even priests come to the faith. Chapter 8, persecution, violent persecution. The church explodes and scatters and grows like dandelions, but in a good way. Chapter 12, Peter in prison. The apostle James is killed. What do you think should happen when the political world steps in and tries to squash the church? That That episode ends with the word of God continuing to increase and multiply. Chapter 13 and 14, again, violent opposition. Paul stoned within an inch of his life. Chapter 15, doctrinal division. End of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas argue and separate. You'd think that all of these things would shut the church down, but they don't. Is it because the church is resilient? You can knock the church down, but we'll get back up and we'll be about mission? 
No. God is resilient, and the word has power. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he meant it. And he said he would build it. And even the church itself can't stop Christ from building his church. God is committed to glorifying Jesus through his church. God will glorify Jesus through his church. And we may say with some reason that the church hasn't necessarily been all that glorifying to Jesus and to God. In Jesus' own words in John chapter 13 and in chapter 17, he said that it's the unity of the church that will lend credibility to the testimony of the church. Well, that's true. But even when we're not all that united, God still glorifies himself through the church. How do we know that? Because the church still exists. People are still coming to faith through the church, sometimes despite our best efforts to prevent them from coming to faith. And I don't direct that to us, the church at large, of which we are a part. And yet God continues to act through the church, to draw people to himself and to see the word of God proclaimed across the world. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. God's commitment to glorify himself cannot be stopped. His his agenda of doing that through the proclamation of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. God will glorify himself. Jesus will build his church. All of God's people will be saved, and God's will will not be thwarted. It's interesting that in this little vignette in the beginning of chapter 16, you probably noticed that, and it might have raised a question for you, that Paul has Timothy circumcised. Timothy's mother is a Jewish woman who has become a believer. We know that from Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul's father was a Greek. There's some language things going on here that make people think that maybe Paul's father had died, but maybe he was just a Gentile, had not come to faith, or he was a Greek who had become a Christian. We don't know. But Paul has Timothy circumcised, which is odd as a part of this single story which the idea of circumcision was such a big deal, and the church had, had decided people don't need to be circumcised to be saved. They're saved by the grace of Christ only. And now suddenly, Paul has Timothy circumcised. Does that strike you as odd? I think it's important to recognize that this is an ex- a perfect example, I think, of what Paul said about himself and his own philosophy of ministry where he says in Corinthians, in a list of other things, basically that he'll do whatever it takes to see people come to faith. To the Jews, I'll become like a Jew. To those under the law, I'll act like one under the law. In other words, Paul is willing to make whatever concession he needs to make without compromising the gospel if it'll facilitate the ministry of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And what we see here is Paul not having Timothy circumcised, mandating it in order that Timothy might be saved. Paul and Timothy and Silas are making a decision that, you know what, if Timothy is circumcised, that will open doors that don't need to be closed to us. 
we know that this has nothing to do with your salvation, Timothy. And as we're preaching the gospel, people will know that we are saved through grace, the grace of Christ. But if you are circumcised, Timothy, that will remove unnecessary barriers. It'll prevent us from offending unnecessarily. And so Paul is making a concession, but without compromising his gospel. And if we doubt that, we just read what he has written in Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians and Romans. Paul is being very gracious here. But this is not a salvation-centered circumcision. So I think it's important that we understand that. It's interesting that after this conflict with Barnabas and this new ministry team is formed, that what we see Paul doing is again recommitting himself to the gospel and saying, I'll do whatever it takes to play my part in the glory of God through Jesus Christ and the word of God moving forward. Did he regret his parting with Barnabas? I don't know. I don't know. But here he is giving himself to the mission all over again. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy revisit the towns where they had been so badly treated just a few years before as courageous men. And they bring with them the decision, the understanding of the Jerusalem leaders that to come, to be saved, is to come to Christ by faith and we are saved purely by grace, not by our actions. And they deliver this letter and then we come to the end. They delivered for observation the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem and the, the footnote, the end bracket of the story, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The separation of Paul and Barnabas should have ended the mission, should have ended Paul's missionary career. But as Helena said this morning, sometimes we start in one way and God redirects us in another and instead, the ministry is strengthened and goes in two different directions, two different parts of the Mediterranean world. God redeems the conflict, and the word goes forward, and the church is strengthened. And as we continue through the book of Acts, what we're going to see is an ever-expanding ministry of the name of Jesus Christ and the growth of the church that goes with it. That's an incredible encouragement for us. I know that in my years as a Christian, I have offended a great many people. I have damaged my relationships with people. I know that in the churches that I have been a part of growing up, and I know that in this church too, there has been a damaging of relationships over the years. We don't always treat each other right. We disagree, but don't always disagree well. And yet be encouraged with the knowledge that God is nonetheless still committed to glorifying himself through the mission of Jesus Christ in your life and in this church. And he will do it. And we can't stop it. We cannot stop it. I hope that you find that encouraging. For those of you who have been here for a very long time, I hope that you can think back over the years and not just think of the times that were hard, 
but can point at things and say God was at work there. God glorified himself in that situation. Remember this year where it seemed like there was so much fruit being born and you'll think of this person and that person and you will know you will know that God has been at work and has been glorifying himself and redeeming our sin, our conflict, the ways that we do things wrong. And you know why that is? Because we are sinners and God is a God of grace. And those two things will always exist side by side in the church until the end of the day when Jesus comes back And God finishes his perfecting work in us. Be encouraged. God is not done glorifying his son and himself through Thornhill Baptist Church and through you. Isn't that good news? I am a sinner and I am weak, but God is good. And I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I often, I often pray in kind of this framework, but it's appropriate to pray it again, to ask for something that is already guaranteed. Jesus, you said you would build your church. And Heavenly Father, through Paul in Ephesians 3, you said that through the church, your wisdom will be manifested, be made known in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. These are guarantees. And we rest on those, but at the same time, in a sort of tension, dichotomy, we ask for those things. We pray for your glory in the church. We pray that through your pulling people together as the body of Christ, that you will glorify yourself in the spiritual world and in the physical world. This we pray. We are thankful for your grace, thankful for your incredible ability to redeem hard situations, to redeem sin. Out of our weakness in sin, yet the glory of Christ moves forward, and we are thankful Thank you that you've called us to partner with you, but we thank you that you have not given us the power to squelch your work in the world. For your good sovereignty, we praise you. And we commit ourselves to love one another in Christ and by the Spirit. That the world will know by our unity, Jesus, that the Father has sent you into the world. But we ask for your help. And Father, help us to look toward you more than we look towards the faults of others or the ways in which we think we are right. Open our eyes to see your mission in the world and how you are doing it. We are here for you. And we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love for us in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's close.